Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 114. That's 114 episodes of UConn 360, the only podcast on earth that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I am coming to you from the beautiful Lakeside Building in Stores, Connecticut. And joining me, as always, is my co-host and friend, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? I'm doing great, Tom. How are you? Doing good. Good. I, I had a chance to go out to Los Angeles recently. Yeah. And one of the friends I met up with is a UConn alum who listens to the uh, UConn 360 podcast. Hey. And he was saying very complimentary things about it, but he kept saying your name as Julie Barracuda. <laughs> That's not one I've heard. And before. I said, I said almost Bartuka. Okay. Almost. I like, I like that. I wonder if there's like a connection. I, I had a, a colleague in business school that called me Julie Bertucci's. So I, I guess I prefer the Barracuda. Yeah, thing. Barracuda. That's cool. So that could be like a roller derby name. Yeah. Hey, there you go. Yeah. That's perfect. If I ever get into roller derby, I'm like the opposite of a roller derby type. Um, my dad and his fiance were in Iceland and oh. they were driving a lot and they were listening to our podcast. So we have to check our metrics to see if yeah, uh, see if we if get we some have Iceland. Yeah, we had. We had I remember the last time I looked, we had a surprising number in Sweden. So okay, maybe, maybe there's something about the podcast that Scandinavian people. Like. I remember you used to plug the Oceania because uh, there were some people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's hey, we still have our tentacles all over the place. Here. Absolutely. Well, because it is, it is the only podcast that covers the University only of Connecticut, one? and we have some interesting University of Connecticut news. Yes, relevant to our topic that we're going to get into later today, the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Provost Office are funding a series of initiatives designed to create new opportunities and expand some successful student programs in environmental sustainability. PRISMATIC is the lovely acronym for the President's Research Investment in Sustainability Measures, Actions, Technologies, Initiatives, and Communities. It was launched in October with funding opportunities available to undergraduate students. It supports President Merrick's pledge to reduce UConn's carbon footprint and reach a state of carbon neutrality by 2030, as well as the Board of Trustees' declaration affirming the university's commitment to sustainability. The offices are committing $50,000 to support student engagement in sustainability projects through a number of grants that go through the Office of Undergraduate Research, like the SURF grant and the IDEA grant programs you might have heard about. There are some others available. And these programs aim to support a broad spectrum of experiential learning opportunities in the sustainability realm. Students who are interested can learn about that in the story on UConn today and at ugradresearch.ucon.edu slash prismatic. Very cool. And the way you teed up that segue was excellent. Yeah, I did it for you. Thank you. Because we are, uh, we're very pleased to be with our in-house sustainability expert. Yes. Elena Hancock. Elena, how are you? All right. How are you? Doing great. And you did an interview with someone who has a very interesting perspective on these issues for us. Tell us who you talked to and what we're going to learn. Yes, I spoke with Talbot Andrews from the Department of Political Science. She studies policy design and how different events can shape how people feel and their attitudes about environmental policy. Anything we should know before we get into it? Well, I was inspired by a lot of the extreme weather events mm. that happened over the summer and into the fall and continue to happen and how that was shaping people's perception of the climate crisis. So it was very exciting. And it ended on a positive note, which is always great. Always good in this field. That is always great. Yeah. So without further ado, let, let's get into it. The summer of 2023 saw record heat waves and wildfires, with smoke and extreme temperatures impacting much of the U.S. With so many people experiencing the results of a changing climate, will this influence how people view the climate crisis? UConn Department of Political Science researcher Talbot Andrews studies political psychology. 
We sat down to talk about how disasters shape public opinion, and we discussed some strategies for how to communicate about these difficult topics in a way to inspire action. Fires are really complicated for exactly that reason, and so are hurricanes, and so are all these other disasters. Is it so hard to point at something and be like, that's a climate change disaster? But it is, in part, a climate change disaster. But there's so much other stuff that goes on. I was reading a little bit about what caused the Maui wildfire, and it seems like these weather patterns and the wind that's really exacerbated everything is climate change. But then you also get into forest management practices and preparedness for fires, and it makes it easier for people to to not blame climate change and to say, I'm worried about all of these other things that are happening. I, I don't know specifically with Maui, but it's pretty typical after any climate change exacerbated disaster to see some, like some people very strongly say, this is at least in part because of climate change. And others say, well, what about what the electric company did? And they didn't follow through with their promises on how they were going to prepare the power lines. And both of those things are true. But there's some concern that moving the attention away from climate change will move the mobilization away from climate change. Do you want to talk about your research or is sure. it, has it been published it has not been published oh yet. so okay <laughs> when is it going to be published that's a great question this is the first conf- second conference we're submitting it to so hopefully after we get some more feedback at the conference we'll send it out so it's not published yet okay <laughs> <laughs> i mean i can talk sort of broadly about the ideas that are behind this that are reflected in other things that are also coming out shortly so where this project really started is in exactly what we're talking about that these extreme weather events have all of these different things that are causing them and we see that disasters don't uniformly increase belief in climate change concern about climate change climate change action and so there's a ton of work thinking about why is that the case and if these climate disasters are going to happen this is a tragedy but can they become focusing events that actually mobilize people and get the public on board? The answer seems to be sometimes, kind of, and a lot of work is looked at what are the characteristics of the disaster. So for example, extreme heat is much better at getting people to care about climate change, whereas extreme cold temperatures that are definitely exacerbated by climate change can actually decrease belief in climate change because people say it's really cold out. And you saw Donald Trump is like tweeting about, look at these ice storms. Like, where's that climate change everyone's talking about? Hurricane hitting California will probably do something. Really unusual disasters tend to move opinion more. But what we were more interested in is how do people talk about the disaster and what do they attribute it to? And does that change how people think about it? So there's really cool research on the media in climate change and how people follow the news and how people talking about climate change on the news can do something. And so across a couple of different papers, we've done work manipulating what parts of the disaster do we highlight. So do we talk about a hurricane as climate change caused or do we just talk about individual preparedness? In this newer paper, um, do we attribute wildfires to climate change? Do we emphasize the cause of like the electric company, this work was all done out West in California and Oregon and Washington. Or do we blame individual preparedness? Do we say like people should have protected their homes better? Or we shouldn't be building in these areas. And the ability of that kind of messaging to change opinion actually seems pretty limited, unfortunately. In other contexts, like in 
work that we're doing in sub-Saharan Africa. We see that increasing climate change literacy and attributing things to climate change is really effective. But the problem in the U.S. doesn't seem to be that people don't know about climate change. It's not like they lack that information. It's that they're like actively rejecting that information sometimes. And so in a piece that's about to come out that I'm really excited about, we show that, for example, local news coverage is actually much more convincing that when people read the New York Times or they read USA Today talking about climate change, if they don't already believe in it, they're like, no, I, I don't buy that message. I don't care anymore about this disaster. But when their local news covers it, then even people who are generally really resistant to that information start to be convinced and say like, okay, I should probably do more to help stop climate change. And so it's not just how we talk about it. The issue seems to be who's talking about it really makes a difference. And that's really scary because local news is just like being gutted at the moment. Local newspapers are being bought up. How do you combat that? So our our optimistic takeaway is that it's not local news specifically. It's news outlets that people trust that have not been as polarized. So, of course, this is horrible that the local news is going away as this outlet that people trust. But, for example... People really trust the Weather Channel, and they don't see the Weather Channel as a political news channel. Mm -hmm. And the Weather Channel is now doing segments on climate change and how it relates to the weather. And so our work suggests that that might be effective. But it's like a Democratic congressman talking about climate change isn't going to have much success convincing someone from the other side that you, an everyday person, should care about this issue uh, and in fact, some other cool work that just came out shows that people really backlash to that and might actually become less worried about climate change. But I guess that's exactly the dynamic that needs to be studied is how it's not that people don't know. It's not a lack of information yeah. that's causing this inaction. There are positive takeaways in here, though. Like when people experience a bad enough disaster, they do tend to care more about climate change across the board. And when people experience like benefits from green energy infrastructure, they tend to also be really supportive. So we, some colleagues here have collected data looking at how Texans think about wind turbines. And it's actually really positive, especially people who are affected by the Texas ice storms. And so despite some pretty strong polarization, when things are happening on the ground, people eventually seem like they have a hard time ignoring that. It seems like there are more disasters happening. Is that is it, are they just being covered more or are they, do you want, can you talk about like the frequency of how they're happening these days? Yeah, I, so I think the answer is both. So their extreme events are getting more frequent and they are getting more severe. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has come down very strongly on that. So we know that hurricanes are happening more frequently. They're going farther than they used to. We're getting more extreme cold weather events in the winter. So these ice storms we keep getting, those are new. Wildfire season is getting worse. Other extreme events, it's a little bit less clear. So for example, there are a lot of debates on our tornadoes getting more frequent or more severe. But with some of these disasters, we're pretty confident that they are happening more often. My sense is that they are also being covered more they are definitely getting covered more in the context of climate change. And so that linkage is happening much more often, especially on more liberal-leading news sources, but also in less political news sources, that link is happening more often. And one thing that social media does do is it 
I think it makes people feel like it's getting covered more because you're seeing it not just as the news coverage, but you also are more directly experiencing what are everyday people who are living through this event thinking about it. And they're tweeting about it. They're posting on TikTok about it. And so we're getting access to these disasters through social media in a way that we didn't before. Are there any other aspects about climate change or sustainability that you don't think are being focused on enough by the media or in general people aren't talking about enough? Uh, That's a good question. What do I wish people talked about more? I So I really, the two things that frustrate me that I think get talked about too much and that maybe lead the way for what should be talked about more is first, it often is so doom and gloom. And we have more and more research showing that focusing on like, this is a catastrophe, things are going to get worse before they get better. Maybe we can't even prevent the worst of this at all. Some of that might be true, but it's super counterproductive. It's really demobilizing. And so if you tell people this situation is bad and hopeless, then why would they bother doing anything about it? And so giving people things that they can do to help stop climate change really helps get people more invested rather than just focusing on this is how terrible everything is. It makes people think it's going to be really expensive to stop climate change if climate change will be expensive. And they just find it really emotionally overwhelming. And so it's great to see these disasters attributed to climate change, and that's really important. But it needs to be done with information on what you can do about it. Otherwise, people will just tune out and be like, this is so overwhelming. I can't even think about it anymore. I'm going to go do something else. And then kind of the opposite of that is, while people should definitely do things to help fight climate change, the biggest thing they can do is vote for environmental policies. Because while conserving electricity on your own and all of that is great, and people should definitely do that, we need bigger infrastructural change if we're going to help stop climate change and actually voting and holding representatives accountable is one of the best things people can do. And so that focus on like climate change is on your shoulders and here's 37 things you can do to help fight the climate crisis, I think can also be counterproductive ultimately because at a certain point an everyday individual can't stop the climate crisis by themselves. There needs to be these bigger, bigger changes. Kind of along those lines to end on like a positive note, is there anything you'd like to share that like gives you hope? Or, or... <laughs> So I think all of this has made me sound very doom and gloom, but I'm actually infinitely optimistic about this. I don't think emotionally I could study it if I, if I wasn't. And I study what everyday people do and how they respond to politics. And across experiments, I constantly find reasons to be optimistic. People are really cooperative. People in these studies will give a lot of real money to help stop climate change. They want to help. Most people want to do something about disaster and want to do something about climate change. And then the burden is on us to figure out how do we channel that energy effectively. But the energy is is there. People care about this. So I I generally feel pretty optimistic can plug plug my book that comes out in March that finds people are super cooperative and they really do want to help stop climate change. Awesome. What's it called? It's called Climate Games, Experiments on the Strategy of Disaster. I find that learning more about the human behavior and 
in society and the political theory and stuff, I felt like that really helped me with my anxiety about climate. I, I don't know. It's more channeled now. Yeah. And I think that's the key is anxiety. There's a bunch of research on the politics of anxiety and fear, and it makes people want to seek out information and it makes people want to do stuff. It's just using that effectively because when people become too anxious, they stop wanting to think about the thing that's making them anxious, which is so reasonable and so human. But we need to remember that when we communicate about climate change. That was great. Thanks again to Lena for for doing that for us. Great. So the new issue of the magazine is out with yes. Jonathan on the cover. Mm-hmm. Everyone uh, who's an alum should have gotten it by now. And on the back, there are some Tom's trivia. Always. Always. And there was a trivia question about when UConn first became a seven-day-a-week campus in terms of meals. Because it used to be yes. five days a week. And then on the weekends, no meals, no housekeeping because everybody went home. It was known as a... Suitcase, suitcase school. Yeah, my mom used to tell me about how they would, if they would stay on the weekends, they would pool all their money for like a pizza or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I got an email from an alum. Actually, I didn't. Somebody in the foundation got an email from an alum saying Tom's trivia is wrong. <laughs> I remember getting weekend meals at a, a certain dorm in 1962. Okay. So first of all, how dare you? No, <laughs> that's probably true. However, that's because up until the 1970s, Dining services at UConn was completely disorganized. Mm. The way it's you mean decentralized? Decentralized? Well, no, disorganized. <laughs> like some were private. Okay. Some were actually affiliated with the university. So each each residence hall had its own thing. Yeah, going on. exactly. The way dining started at UConn was fraternities would hire cooks essentially, mm-hmm. and then there was the beanery, but. The individual dining halls were like, no, we're going to hire our own. And so that, that persisted for years. So some made their own rules. The first time it actually became a university-wide policy mm-hmm. to serve meals on the weekends was 1989. That's all. Yeah. Wow. Pretty I, far into our existence here. Yeah. I have an article here from the advance in February of 1989. And the headline is, trustees approve a series of fee increases. Can seven-day campus be far behind? Mm. This is by Walter McGowan, Jr., It's official. I love starting off articles by saying it's official. (laughs) Starting with the fall 1989 semester, UConn will no longer be a suitcase school. A reputation that has persisted since World War II, the suitcase tag is expected to disappear with the inception of weekend food and housekeeping services for students. Wow. So, yeah. They actually... To promote this, they had a, a big like pep rally, I guess, on campus, and they burned a giant suitcase in effigy. We don't do enough burnings in effigy anymore. No, I don't. As a university, I don't see that happening very often. Community. Were they like made out of paper mache or something? Like cardboard, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm picturing the movie Grease, the the bonfire pep rally situation yeah. there. That's that's what happened probably. Yeah. yeah. But okay, anyway, so 1989, Taylor Swift. The year Taylor Swift was because every, everything is a tie into Taylor Swift. Everything now. is. Yep, especially here because our social media manager is a, is a big fan. I okay so 1989 we we were no longer it's really interesting to me that they like were like it's official we're not going to be a suitcase school anymore because we're doing this yeah that's that's kind of interesting to take that reputation and be like nope Yep. Reputation, another Taylor Swift reference. I'm a, I'm a Swifty. Wow. Okay. So you know. Yeah. So y- you may, in fact, have remembered eating on the weekends, but it was a sporadic and not universal policy. Disorganized. Disorganized. You get an angry letter from someone. I am, undoubtedly. That's cool. Well, I personally have many fond memories of eating at, at UConn. UConn. Yeah. I, I used to. 
<laughs> when I lived in South Campus, every single day they had a different kind of stuffing and mashed potatoes at one of the stations in the South Campus dining hall, and I would eat it every single day. <laughs> hey, that's what, that's what college because is for. Because it was so good. Yeah. No, you walk a lot, thankfully, in college. So you do, especially so you in this campus. Maintain your health despite eating like that. I also have a bonus 1989 fact. Oh, so cool. For Swifties, I guess. <laughs> um, 1989 was also the, the year that the very first lab at UConn that was open to the entire university community opened. So we have a lot of labs, mm -hmm. chemistry labs, biology labs, engineering mm -hmm. labs. But this was the first lab that anyone could sign up for. What kind of lab do you think it was? Oh, I'm going to guess geology. It was a computer lab. Oh, I should have known that. It was an Apple computer lab. Okay. And uh, then UConn Provost Thomas Ty using a computer mouse in quotation marks <laughs> in the article, electronically cut a computer-generated ribbon with animated scissors. Oh, that's cute. Opening the new lab to the campus community. Cool. It was the Macintosh Personal Computer Lab is the first all-Apple lab, the first lab open to the general university community, according to Malcolm Tote, executive director of the Computer Center. Cool. There were other computer labs before that, but they were specialized and you had to be part of a certain program to use mm -hmm. it. But this was the first computer lab Open everybody. I remember because I'm a thousand years old when uh, <laughs> I was a student here and you had to go to the computer lab for yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah, you didn't have your own computer. You'd get floppy disks in mm -hmm. your classes mm -hmm. and you'd have to go and you'd have to do things with the floppy disks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very few people had their own computers. My parents did like, what were those things called? Punch cards. Punch cards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they had that going on in the engineering stuff. Yeah, I, I had a laptop in my room. Tom. Yeah. I did not. I went to the computer lab. It was a good way to socialize. We did that too, though. No, we. I mean, we went to the library to work on things, and I don't know. Yeah, sometimes I got to print something. Um, wow. Well, that's fascinating. 1989, a big year at UConn. Big year. Uh, yeah, computer lab and food on the weekends. Taylor's version out now. <laughs> really good bonus tracks. We're not We're not being paid <laughs> by Taylor's show. Although, I wish we were. we're up for it. We are. Contact us about sponsorship opportunities. She might. She, they might honestly find us and tell us to like take this down, <laughs> cease and desist us. Okay. No, uh, only only love for Taylor. All right. Awesome. Good job. So this has been another installment of UConn 360. Thanks for listening as always. I don't know. If you want to find us online, the best place to do it is probably today.uconn.edu. Oh, magazine.uconn.edu. I wanted to, a little, nice little cross promotion. There's a great story today, which this will be out, I don't know when, in a few days, but on uh, Lynn Malerba, the U.S. Treasurer, who is a UConn alum, Master of Public Administration program, right? Yes. She came to visit because UConn Magazine did a story on her and they had Sage Phillips, who's uh, now a grad student who's uh, been instrumental in the Native American cultural programs and the, some of the student organizations, an indigenous student who said, hey, it would be so great if you'd come visit. And she said, I will. And they plan this whole event and it's super exciting. So there's coverage of the event on UConn today and there's also our UConn magazine story. Story written by Mike Enright about yep. the event. And you know why? Why? Because Mike Enright's mother taught Lynn Malerba's husband in elementary school and Whoa! he had very fond memories of her. So Aww, she seems like a really amazing person. Yeah. So Fun stuff happening here at UConn all the time. A lot of good stuff happening this semester. Don't um, go on Twitter. We don't. No. I mean, I'm still there, but yeah. uh, I'm also on Blue Sky. What the heck is Blue Sky? It's the Twitter alternative. It's started by Jack Dorsey. Okay. Uh, you can find me on Blue Sky. You can find me on X. <laughs> but that's about it. We're really, really more focused on our university websites. Yeah. Yeah. We tried to just be available. We're still available to the people if they want to. Absolutely. We've gotten it. some emails from listeners. Yep. Yeah. One. Steven. 
Hey, Stephen. Hey, shout out, Stephen. Okay, so thanks, everyone. And we'll be back in December. And yeah, until then, visit Yukon websites frequently and enjoy uh, Thanksgiving. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.